Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We're going to start with an interesting little story. I've been seeing a lot of itching and uh, urticaria, that is to say hives and other signs of histamine in the skin. And I came across this case study from May in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which I found intriguing. I thought you'd, I'd tell you about the study, but also make some comments about this condition of chronic hives, because it's not unusual, and it's really difficult to manage. So I want to talk about how I've been managing it, and also about a uh, agent that just recently got approved for this indication that might be something I start suggesting to patients when they fail my first two tiers of management, which honestly isn't all that often. But in a couple of weeks, I'll be off on vacation. We'll have some pre-recorded programs, and one of them's going to be all about mast cells and allergies. So this is uh, going to serve as a little bit of a preamble to that because it's about hives, and hives are all about mast cells, cells that wander around our skin looking for trouble, but also responding to uh, IgE, which will stud its surface and uh, react to allergens. So that runny nose that you get when it's uh, your hay fever season, mast cells. That uh, those itchy, watery eyes that you get when it's your hay fever season. Yep, mast cells again. Not to mention wheezing and sneezing and hives. So, this is a clinical case study that was presented, and part of it was just to make sure that the it, we test ourselves all the time. It's kind of a drill in medicine, but we'll have a case presentation. And then the question will be like, what are you supposed to do? What would be your first move? What would be your next move? And in fact, the board exams nowadays are designed not entirely for you to regurgitate protocols, but to actually use some clinical reasoning, something I'm very much in favor of, clinical reasoning, that is, not board exams. Okay, so getting to this study, a healthy 27-year-old woman received a COVID-19 mRNA booster vaccine, Moderna, on December 7th, 2021. She had not experienced adverse effects after the first two vaccine doses on January 17th and February 5th, 2021. Twelve days after the booster vaccination, she developed pyritic wheels on her face and bilateral transient eyelid swelling. Wheels are bumps, basically hives. Uh, itch, pyritic means itching. Over the next week, an itchy rash spread over her neck, trunk, and arms. Each lesion faded without scarring within 24 hours. This is an important point. Most drug rashes or allergic uh, rashes of the uh, drug reaction nature are not hives. They're actually a fixed rash that might hang around for days. Getting back to the story, she did not experience lip, tongue, or neck swelling, shortness of breath, wheezing, whole list of things she didn't have. I won't bore you. Uh, application of pressure to the forearm in a circular motion using a pen cap, you know, the blunt side of a BIC, basically, elicited a wheel and flare lesions. 
And that's one I want to talk to you about, because if you are having uh, lines in your skin that are red and itchy after friction, that's a sign that you have high levels of histamine in your skin. It's called dermatographism. And you can even write your name if you want uh, on your arm. And first thing that'll happen is you'll get a little red line and the red line will get redder and redder. And then you'll get a little white rim around the red line or circle, as the case may be. And that's a sign that histamine has been released in your skin from mechanical trauma, which really only happens when those mast cells are on a hair trigger alert. The patient had no history of atopy, which is to say allergies, hay fever. Uh, She had no history of any kind of food or drug allergy and no recent infections, all things that could do this. She's taking no prescription medication, no recent over-the-counter medication, including ibuprofen, which can do this. She had no recent travel exposure to animals, no personal care products. So what are you going to do? Well, the answer is give her high-dose antihistamines, if low-dose antihistamines work, but for goodness sakes, give her antihistamines. And what I would do is I'd also give her two other things. I'd give her an H2 blocker, which is technically an acid suppressor because it suppresses the histamine 2 receptors in the stomach and reduces the amount of stomach acid, which can be helpful if a person has ulcers. This was the old ulcer drugs, Tigamet and friends. Uh, But this also can be very helpful with skin uh, reactions of this kind, so chronic hives. I would also put that person on quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, which is a bioflavonoid found in apple skin, onion skin, and a lot of other good, healthy fruits and vegetables. Quercetin has interesting properties. There's some data that it might help you not get very sick from COVID. Soft data, but data. There's a lot of data about what might help you not get sick from COVID. As you might imagine, the threshold for publishing stuff over the last two years has been lower, and the standard of proof has been lower because we've really just been kind of desperate. We're less desperate now, and we're going back and critically examining those earlier things. But realistically, anything that was published about COVID any time after February 2020 through probably the end of this year needs to be looked at, gone back and replicated and had the have the statistics reworked because things were just being published. And we usually think of anything that manages to get through the filter of publication as being validated. But honestly, the filter got a little bit less fine-tuned during COVID. We just have to accept that. But that was a digression. So what does this mean? The take home here is that she got a reaction after a COVID booster. It doesn't prove much. It doesn't prove that it had anything to do with the COVID booster because there's all sorts of times that people develop this without uh, having any apparent trigger or exposure. And one of the things they did not talk about was stress. And I'll tell you, stress right now, uh, That was, uh, let's see, December of uh, 2021. That was right in the middle of a major Omicron surge, if you'll remember. So, yeah, stress causes your mast cells to become more reactive. It's a huge problem. And 
one of the things I do when people literally break out in a rash, especially if it resembles these hives, is I, I have them do stress reduction. I have them start meditating or biofeedback or whatever they got. Because if you lower those stress hormones, you're going to lower the response regardless of what triggered it. Because the stress is not just a trigger, it's a mediator, an amplifier. And you don't need to be amplifying it. But for people who don't respond to all of the things I've already just listed, um, an agent that was originally approved for asthma that I'm going to tell you a little bit about called Omalizumab. Omalizumab. Let's just go with the trade name Zolaire. And Zolaire is an antibody against antibodies. It actually binds to the IgE. Remember I said that the mast cells have IgE on their surface and they don't release histamine unless that IgE attaches to an antigen? Well, if you bind up the free IgE in the bloodstream, two things happen. One of which is that the mast cells become less uh, likely to grab whatever IgE they can find. The receptors on the mast cells are downregulated and the total amount of IgE that's running around decreases. And that reduces these chronic hives. So this agent is a monoclonal antibody. And as monoclonal antibodies go, this one is a really safe one because of what its target is. It attacks the free-floating IgE and takes it essentially to the liver, where the liver treats it like any antibody-antigen reaction and simply dissolves it and recycles the material. The drug is given by subcutaneous injection, so kind of given like insulin, if you will, and you get, and it's very slow to uh, get into the plasma, but it stays for a very long time. In fact, the dosing interval for this stuff is every four weeks, and many people improve after a single dose. I did not have a chance to check the discounted price of this agent, but given that it's an injectable, it's probably something that you're going to have to get at a specialist office. It's not something that primary care doctors are likely to keep in their cupboard, nor urgent cares. But nevertheless, maybe the dermatologist will start having it, because if you're suffering from chronic hives, that's probably one of the places that you're going to wash up on the shores is the dermatologist. So I'm hoping it's not too expensive and that it makes sense for doctor's offices to start stocking it. But it is available and it is used for chronic asthma and it has an FDA approval for these chronic urticaria. So for people who just haven't responded to anything else, some pretty good news. Now, more good uses for existing chemicals, good chemicals, but good chemicals for a different indication. So this is a drug that called baricitimib, and this is another uh, monoclonal-type agent. Uh, it is an inhibitor of something called the Janus kinase inhibitor, and it's an oral agent, which is nice. It's been approved for the treatment of moderate to severely active rheumatoid arthritis, which is a terrible, disfiguring, and life-altering disease. So the stakes of being able to treat it are extremely high. Not only does it affect the joints and literally cause them to erode away uh, due to the, basically due to the release of inflammatory mediators and chemicals designed to kill bacteria that actually eat the joint away, terrible disease, 
It also affects the skin, the eyes, the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, and nerve tissue. It's a type of autoimmune disease, and because it's inflammatory, people with rheumatoid arthritis have an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So pretty terrible disease, and we have a whole host of disease-modifying agents, and uh, some of these include old drugs that were used for malaria, and we also use methotrexate, which a repurposed drug that was given for cancer and is still used in some cancer protocols. We have uh, the DMARDs, the tumor necrosis alpha drugs, which are essentially antibodies against that mechanism, the tumor necrosis factor, which is a strong pro-inflammatory agent. And you have these Janus kinase inhibitors. This drug basically has a really interesting mechanism of action because it is found inside the cells. The, the JAK, its target, uh, the Janus kinase, are inside the cells, and they transmit signals. They are transducers. So basically the chemical signals that are coming from your white blood cells and all of the inflammatory cells, like interleukin-1 and interleukin-6 and interferon-gamma, all of these pro-inflammatory agents go to the cell surface and they sit there and they attach to a receptor. Changes the shape of the receptor. The receptor is going through the, me- the cell membrane, that lipid bilayer we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and it's changing its shape. The shape change on the inside of the cell is detected and sets off these Janus kinases, and they go to the nucleus and phosphorylate the, let's call them the, the paper clips that are sitting on the DNA and preventing the DNA from being transcribed. So they activate the signal transducers, they activate transcription, and then the transcription of the anti of the inflammatory mediators begins. So you get this whole cascade, including the production of tumor necrosis factor alpha, which we learned about first because we can find that one in the bloodstream. The jacks are inside the cells, so it took a lot more science to even figure out they existed. So this has been a very good agent for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, but a new application that I think will have much broader use is uh, and important use, because we don't have a good drug for this, is using this baricitinab in alopecia areata. Alopecia areata is uh, sometimes a transient problem. People under a lot of stress develop an autoimmune disease. They attack their hair follicles, and they lose hair in patches. But for some people, uh, people may have active disease that leads to progression of the hair loss until they become completely bald. And this is terrible. Sometimes it even progresses so that all the body hair everywhere disappears. That's called alopecia universalis. And many people with this severe disease are looking at you know serious challenges psychologically. So in this new trial that was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine just this May, using this agent uh, in 1,200 patients with alopecia areata, is uh, really, really made a huge difference. It established that inhibition of the JAKs would reduce both gamma, interferon gamma and interleukin-15, and these are the, you know, the big actors who've been identified in alopecia areata. So what we have now is a validated agent that has 
multiple years of track record. It goes back, uh, let's see, it's approved in March of 2019. And by the way, that one actually went through the standard approval process, not the accelerated approval, because we had plenty of drugs that were working okay. But for the non-responders, this was approved. Now we have a second indication. Again, if our first-line therapy doesn't work, we have a second-line therapy. And as appropriate, the second-line therapy will be proprietary for 17 years so that the companies can make back their research money. And after that, it should go generic and no shenanigans. That's another soapbox. So we'll leave it there. New treatments for chronic urticaria and also for alopecia areata. So we've been talking about good chemicals. I thought I'd tell you about some new things that have come out. And I will add that we've had some really interesting things that came through in 2021 that actually, yeah, we were preoccupied with a whole bunch of things there. And so uh, we didn't pay as much attention perhaps to this major breakthrough in science as we should have. The scientific breakthrough of the year was probably the development of an artificial intelligence that can pr- predict the shape of nearly every human protein just from its DNA sequences. Because we've gotten good enough that we can predict twisting and we can say, oh, there's a positive charge here and there's a negative charge over there, so they're going to attract each other because they're the right distance and it's going to cause a, a hairpin curve to occur in the protein at this point. And now we know that this will bring that positive charge now in contact with this other negative charge, which it wasn't anywhere near, but now they're close enough to interact, so they're going to stick together and so on. So you eventually can just look at a sequence of letters and predict the shape of the protein. And we, up until that point, after a century of working at it, had only determined the shapes of about one-third of human proteins. Why do we care? Well, because if we know the shape of it, then we can build a drug. We can build an anti... Uh, we can, if it, Let's suppose that protein is a receptor for estrogen, for example, and we want to inhibit estrogen receptors, we can build a shape that will fit into that but not activate the receptor. So it effectively is like putting bubble gum in a keyhole. It doesn't do anything to turn the lock, but it sure does help keep the key from getting in there to turn the lock. And you can make those so that they irretrievably uh, close the receptors. It can be very, very powerful, real, real toolkit. So the same software has now been validated already designing drugs, not five years in the future, but short, small strings of 50 to 65 amino acids. These are called mini antibodies. So they're basically a small, not even long enough really to be a protein uh, per se. So let's call it a polypeptide with 50 amino acids. And they form a 3D shape and you can target uh, human proteins. You can bind to a protein and stop it from being active. So for example, they designed one that binds to the spike protein and it completely protected mice from infection because it inactivated the spike protein of COVID-19. They also have done the same thing with influenza. So these mini antibodies are really interesting because they stay in the body for a very, very long time. They can be analogous, if you will, to a vaccination except instead of having to go through the whole process of 
making up a, a clone of plasma cells that are going to continue to make the antibody and then boosting, we could, instead of a flu vaccine, we might be able to come up with a universal flu vaccine that could be given maybe as as rarely as every five years. And because it's specific to a protein, it's going to have a low probability, probably not a zero probability, but a low probability of off-target hits where it's going to attack something else. And of course, that molecular mimicry off-target hits is responsible for a lot of diseases, probably among others, because we've talked about this about two months ago, um, multiple sclerosis and Epstein-Barr virus. So if we start thinking about blocking that reaction, things start to get really, really interesting. So I'm terribly excited about this breakthrough. Maybe we'll do one more good chemical just quickly, just before the break. And this one is um, magic mushrooms, psilocybin. So you've probably heard about psilocybin being used to treat depression. Uh, In a study recently done at the Imperial College of London, they had uh, 43 people with severe depression, and they treated them either with psilocybin or Lexapro and psychotherapy. But they took MRI scans of the participant's brain before the first dose and three weeks after the final dose. And this was about an eight-week study, which is long enough for the antidepressant to do its thing. Those who got the Lexapro reported a mild improvement in their condition, but their brain scans showed that their neural activity was still constrained. In other words, they had rigid thought patterns and they were trapped in a downward spiral of doom and gloom, which is a very good description of what depression feels like. However, those who had been given psilocybin reported a very quick and sustained improvement and their MRI scans showed much more neural conductivity. In other words, a sign of a healthy brain with some resilience that can kind of shrug off setbacks rather than one that's trapped in a loop of confirmation bias saying the world sucks and this just proves it. It's like, yeah, that happened. No big deal. Completely different neurologic responses. One rather more adaptive than the other. Psilocybin seems to allow you to see things in a entirely new light. And somehow society and science has given itself permission to really start doing this work and really start doing this research. What we do see is to be effective, you need to have relentlessly positive people in the room with you so that if you start to amplify your doom and gloom, they distract you and bring you back to the positive. In other words, children, don't try this alone at home when you're feeling bad. It might not go well. Just a reminder, it is tick season, and I've been getting some questions about Lyme disease. Uh, I will say that the worst place in the county, the one that actually gets close to the 50% infectious rate on the ticks, is the Forest of Nicene Marks. If you love that place or mountain bike there, recommendation is go to the feed store and pick yourself up some pyrethrin or some permethrin. These are uh, molecules based on the chrysanthemum plant, and they are a knockdown insect killer. They're a knockdown insecticide. A mosquito lands on you, a tick crawls up your sock, that tick's going down. You dilute the things to the level that you would spray it on a horse. Uh, you'll have to look up the package instructions depending on which product you end up with. If you want to, you can just go to the 
drugstore and buy RID, which is the stuff you're supposed to spray on your furniture when your kid gets head lice, knockdown insecticide kills the head lice. So either way, and that stuff, if you get your clothing damp, how damp is that? Well, back in the day when people used to iron clothes, you would you would spray the clothes with water just to get them slightly damp. Think not as damp as a wet wipe. And then you let it dry. That'll last, once it's dried, it'll stay in the fabric for about four to five wa- clothes washings. And so if, you, if your exterior hiking uh, clothes are covered, so, you know, lightweight long pants, sprayed, tucked into socks, also sprayed, and do a tick inspection at the end. Because basically, Lyme disease is creepy. It can be very bad for you. It is a thing. But on the other hand, avoiding getting the tick up on your body where it can attach for 24 hours and transmit the disease is your best treatment right there. Nip it in the bud, so to speak. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the human health effects of chemical mixtures and the critical periods of development where they do the most damage. It's hard to see damage, but recent research is really giving us tools to allow us to examine things. For example, uh, we already talked in the last thing about psilocybin, how we now have scanners that can actually identify thought patterns by what parts of your brain are burning glucose and in what proportion. That's amazing. If you were a woman, you wouldn't drink alcohol while you were pregnant unless you had an addiction issue. That would be crazy. There's a lot of things you wouldn't do while pregnant. But what about getting a pedicure? What about uh, what about your hair products? Body care products while pregnant, uh, chemical as nail salon and chemical hair products, a lot of things can actually, it turns out, have an adverse effect on the developmental brain of the fetus. And a particular uh, culprit is a class of compounds called perfluoroalkyl substances. These are extremely persistent with a biological half-life of up to four to eight years in the human body. So... Think about what that means if it gets into a fetus brain. uh, It's going to be there for a while. Humans are repeatedly and constantly exposed to things like phthalates and phenols, and they are not benign. We have studies showing, for example, that phthalates affect genitalia development. If it can affect a physical uh, thing that you can measure with a ruler, imagine what it's doing at the microscopic level, and particularly in the brain, which is developing so rapidly in childhood. So it's poorly understood. But what we do know is that infant and fetal development and early childhood infant development are critical periods for development of the central nervous system. A recent study published in Science, and this was in the February 2022 issue, did a population-based cohort 1,800 mother-child pairs in Sweden between 2007 and 2010, and they measured concentrations in serum and urine from the mothers in their 10th week of pregnancy, looking at concentrations of these perfluoroalkyl compounds and also phthalates and bisphenol A and triclosan, all those antibacterial cleansers that when you're pregnant, you're probably being very careful to use. Yeah, they estimated that these endocrine disruptor mixtures were associated. And when they looked at the cohort, they found that 
about 10% of children in the highest quartile of exposure had language delay, which is a pretty blunt instrument as far as looking for neurological development. So they defined language delay as having fewer than 50 words at the age of 30 months old. That will be an indication that's used in Sweden because obviously different languages are going to have probably different rates of language acquisition. They looked at what was the mix that they were seeing most often, what levels of phthalate, what levels of fluoroalkyls, what, and they tested them on tadpoles, zebrafish, and cerebral organoids, which are these stem cell creations that mimic a brain, but just have the functionality at the cellular level, but aren't going around thinking or anything. We use liver organoids and heart organoids all the time now to test the effects of drugs. They identified gene networks that were altered by this mixture in the cerebral organoids, and they found that there were major targets in three enzyme pathways, the thyroid pathway, the estrogen pathway, and the PPAR endocrine pathways. Well, the PPAR endocrine pathway is critical in diabetes. And so you have to ask yourself, is environmental pollution another factor involved in why we're seeing all of this childhood onset, quote unquote, this adult onset diabetes, we used to call it type 2 diabetes We used to call it adult onset because we never saw it in kids. Now we see it in kids all the time. Is that because of some change in human behavior or is that because of something that's getting into those kids and their mothers more accurately while they're pregnant that's altering fetal development? Well, I'm going to vote for the second possibility. There are more than 4,000 of these compounds, the ones that last for four to eight years, the perfluoroalkyls, out there in commercial products. And we have no human studies that can accurately detect and quantify the concentrations of all of the ones that are out there. We have a few studies, a few clinical tests, but we have got uh, a lot of stuff floating around in the environment that's affecting childhood neurological development, and we've had it for a while. And I think it would be really interesting to see how that particular thing, the compounds that I've just mentioned in the environment, the endocrine disruptors, uh, track with the development of type 2 diabetes in, say, the grade school population. We have from Lori in Santa Cruz, ketamine versus psilocybin mushrooms. Okay, very, very different in terms of what we're seeing with those. So ketamine is actually legal, so we are seeing that being used for depression and it is a anesthetic. Uh, it is turning off. It's doing a brain reboot, and it seems to be showing promise for two things, alcoholism and depression. There are clinics in the area where you can go and pay them a bunch of money, and maybe your insurance will reimburse you if you meet certain criteria for this. And these are commercial entities, so you aren't in a placebo trial. You'll actually get the three, the treatment if you want to Google the ketamine. I'm kind of holding out for that only in extreme circumstances where you've tried everything else and you're pretty desperate and it's available. The psilocybin is still experimental and it really does need to be done in a controlled fashion. It's not going to be effective unless you follow. It's a very long protocol. It's like eight hours in there with 
one or two people who were kind of keeping you on the right path, doing essentially a lot of psychotherapy to reset the thresholds, reset the gates and the ingrained responses. You're in a very malleable state, and that can bring you back to a more flexible state of mind and a more resilient state of mind. And it does work. It's like you get a step back and step out of your loops, but you need guidance. So until that's professionally available, and I think that it will not be long before the the studies which are proceeding quickly validate it enough that we get some FDA approval and we can really start taking advantage of all these wonderful compounds that the plants offer us. We moved back, God, in the 1920s. We moved away from botanical medicine into drug development and pharmaceutical development right at the point where we were starting to have the analytics to actually really understand botanical medicine. And while research continued, it was small and it wasn't promoted to doctors and few physicians really took it up in the MD world, although we do have the naturopathic doctors who were all over plant medicine for a very long time. And personally, I think that a molecule that's been on the planet that co-evolved with us is just by definition going to be safer. That's why I'm saying... I think psilocybin is going to turn out to be the winner here by a lot. But at the moment, you can get ketamine therapy and you can't get psilocybin therapy unless you get very lucky and get into a study. Continuing on our bad chemical thread, uh, pre-adolescents exposed to high levels of air pollution in their first years of life display changes of brain connectivity. And it seems like higher level to air pollution is associated with actually higher functional brain connectivity among several brain regions in adolescence. Now, the way the brain is organized, the higher centers tend to be suppressive. You inhibit things. The more mature you get, the more your brain matures, the more control you have over your impulsivity, the more control you have over your limbic system, right? Self-control is something that evolves in the brain over the first 24 years of life. This study looked at magnetic brain resonance imaging to explore whether higher exposure to air pollution or noise could be associated with alterations in the way that different brain areas interact. And MRIs opened up amazing possibilities in uh, epidemiologic research, as I've already said. These researchers looked at 2,100 children born between 2002 and 2006 and living in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and using models and uh, available data, they estimated the levels of nitric oxide and particulate matter at the participants' home at different time periods during pregnancy, uh, from birth to three years, from three to six, and six to the age with the MRI was performed. And noise levels due to traffic roads were used to estimate noise maps because they were also studying noise. And between 9 and 12, they put the kids in an MRI scan in the resting state with no external stimuli, just kind of null environment. And what they found was it was the nitric oxide and the small 2.5 micron particles. You'll remember that discussion from August's uh, lightning complex fire in 2020. Uh, those black carbon particles get into your brain. And from the from birth to three years, that had 
a very profound effect, both of them, on brain connectivity. From three to six years of age, only the nitric oxide seemed to have a, a, a factor. And the two networks that were showing higher connectivity were the task negative, or what we call the default mode network. Uh, that's when you're not doing something, when you're not focusing on a task. The default mode actually uses three times more energy than the task mode, which is super interesting because sometimes the task mode is something like mental mathematics. You'd expect that to use more energy. Uh, but actually, uh, at least as far as the MRI is concerned, it doesn't. It's the default mode that uses the most energy. And that's when you're sort of thinking about three or four things at once and not really thinking about any of them. The increased activity in both of the networks in resting conditions is different in children exposed to higher levels of air pollution. And we know that the black carbon in the younger age, under three, is showing the strongest changes in connectivity. And this is probably not good. It's probably related to things like more ADD, which is associated with higher brain connectivity. It's probably related to changes in other factors. And they haven't correlated it yet. A good, stu- a good follow-up study would be to do cognitive testing on children in the highest and lowest quartiles of brain connectivity and see what the differences were in things like sustained attention, in uh, the ability to hold on to a task. If you have higher activity in both channels, do they step on each other? And that is actually probably true. So our next story also looks at brain connectivity. This one in adolescence, it's called The Effect of Stress on Adolescence Brain's Triple Network. So stress and trauma during adolescence can cause long-term health consequences psychiatric disorders, of course, but also behavioral disorders, associations with, uh, associations with everything from addiction to eating disorder. This study, uh, published in Biological Psychiatry, used functional resonance imaging, the one I've been talking about, to examine the effects of acute stress on three brain networks in adolescence. So they wanted to know how stress influences connectivity at those networks that we were just talking about. So we have the default mode network, the salience network, and the central executive network. So these are critical for controlling thought, emotion, perception, and social interaction. The salience network is used for, it's kind of your filter. It's uh, involved in filtering salient stimuli. In other words, stuff that's important to notice. It's kind of the thing that says, oh, look, those tiger stripes hiding there in the in the leaves might be bad. It's also used, it's very important in, for example, social interaction and also self-awareness, being knowing how you feel. So I'm sure that you've, if you've worked with small children, you know that they are upset, but they can't tell you their salience network isn't uh, developed to the point where they can actually identify what's going on. They just know that they're not right. And then you have the central executive network. That's basically the frontoparietal cortex. That's the last part of your brain to develop in maturity. And that's the one that's involved in goal-directed, cognitively demanding tasks. It's the one that allows you to maintain and manipulate information 
making decisions when you have a goal so that you keep your goal in mind and make decisions that take you toward it. All of those things that we sort of think of as associated with adult maturity. And that particular network, when it's engaged, is actually more energy efficient than when you're just not focusing on anything. The default mode network, if you went, is the deeper one. So they looked at functional connectivity between these three networks in 79 children from 9 to 16, and many of these kids had multiple traumatic events, something they were calling in this study polyvictimization. In the control conditions, the children completed math problems at their own pace, and their answers were not recorded. In the stress condition, the patients had to do the math problems quickly during an allotted time and were given negative feedback throughout the test for anything they got wrong. During the acute stress uh, condition, all of the participants showed altered connectivity between the three brain networks, increased connectivity between default and central executive, exactly what we were talking about with the air pollution just a minute ago, and decreased connectivity between the salience network. So this was worse in the subjects who experienced the polyvictimization. It was as if they were more self-conscious, that they had more second-guessing, and they had essentially, they were what's called spectating themselves as they were trying to do something. Instead of trying to do the task and blocking out everything, there was a voice in their head saying, you're so stupid, you'll never get this done, la, 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 la. And I have been a test taker all my life, an effective one. It's how I got where I am today. And I will tell you that blocking out that negative salience network is critical. You can't start perseverating on the answer you don't know. You treat that as a problem. Go on to the next one. Hope you get a clue. Hope something something jogs your memory. And remember where you put the problem that you couldn't solve. But you don't beat yourself up. That's death. It kills your ability to answer the next question. So repeated trauma leads to a maladaptive response to acute stress and creates a mechanism by which multiple life stressors may lead to increased liability for mental health problems, but also just lowered test scores without actually lowering your intelligence, just lowering your ability to maintain the appropriate functional connectivity between these three selves, and I'm sure there's more cells, but those three are the dominant ones we've been able to identify using this technology. It's so important. You can think of this environmental pollution, but you can also think of the internal pollution of trauma and stress hormones and a loss of the ability to get into that parasympathetic safe place, which is our birthright and where all children and all adults need to be able to find a path back to in order to, you know, be, well, reach their full potential as entities. And with the things that have been going on in the last two years and continue to go on, I mean, there's a certain amount of perseveration right now going on that is maybe a little excessive, but it's important to do the postmortem, but it's also important to look forward and start thinking of solutions. And I feel like we're we're giving up. I'm having a lot of conversations with people and they're just feeling so overwhelmed they're checking out. We can't do that, folks. We have to find a problem that we can focus on, that we can do something about and work at it. Whether that's a political problem, whether that's campaign finance reform, whether that's helping out in the healthcare system, uh, whether that's, you know, fill in the blank. What gives you passion? 
focus on that. Get that um, executive network, get, get that frontoparietal central executive network working because that's your higher self right there. And we need to find our way back to our higher self. While we're talking about all of these salience networks and stuff, I think I'm going to bounce to this article, Calming Our Spinal Cords, How This Could Provide Relief from Muscle Spasms. Poor sleep, difficulty moving and injuries from hitting something accidentally are just some of the challenges faced by sufferers of of frequent involuntary muscle spasms. Uh, People at the Edith Cohen University were studying motor neurons in the spine. They were looking at these spasms. Some people uh, will, as they start to fall asleep, they'll get painful leg spasms. Often you can fix that with, with a banana and some magnesium, but if you can't, your spinal cord is hyper-excitable. And certainly many people with various uh, neurodegenerative diseases have painful spasms the whole time. You know, c- cerebral palsy and spasticity, those are all related to a very low threshold for the muscles to tighten up and spasm. The brain normally sends messages via motor neurons in the spine. They amplify the neural signals so that the brain doesn't have to send so hard a signal to contract our muscles. But this amplification can go haywire if it isn't controlled. Remember what I said about suppression, right? So this, you get suppression from above. If you want to run for the bus, you want to amplify, but we wouldn't be able to normally produce more than 40% of our maximal force, but we can basically build through injury hyper-excitable spinal motor neurons. And we have no inhibition at that point because it's all happening at the local level. The central nervous system can't do anything. And this leads to involuntary muscle spasms. So this is the group of people that they were studying, people who have this low threshold for spasm. They looked at two different therapies. One is electrical stimulation of specific nerves, which research has found can reduce the amplification. I do something like this in my office called electroacupuncture. These tend to work by a counter-regulatory system. In other words, you overstimulate an area that's already overstimulated, and it triggers the turndown response. It, it finally gets the brake going, and it sets up the, uh, the, in, the inhibitory inner neurons in the spine and turns down the spasm. But just equally effective at reducing these spasms is central nervous system relaxation. So meditation and relaxation techniques worked equally well as treatments for muscle spasm. So if you next time you have some muscle spasms, you might try uh, doing some meditation. And by the way, I think we should all, as I said earlier, develop some sort of meditation or relaxation skills. There's a ton of things, mindfulness meditation, there's apps that you can put on your phone. It's all about practicing. Just five to 10 minutes a day can make a huge difference in your long-term health. And just like eating well, you may not notice the difference except by the absence of the bad things that would otherwise happen to you if you weren't doing them. Well, that's the catch-22 of prevention. So harking back to that AI that was building microRNAs, this next story Let's see, this was April 3rd, 2022 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. A single ascending dose study 
of a short interfering RNA targeting lipoprotein A production in individuals with elevated plasma lipo A. Now, lipoprotein A is a risk factor for uh, thrombotic disease and blood clotting and heart disease and also aortic stenosis, but we don't have any treatments for it. The only thing I know that will sometimes treat it is massively high doses of niacin, which are hard to take. You can't use the no-flush niacin. It does work. It'll bring it down. I got this out from the Linus Pauling Institute a few years ago, but few of my patients could actually tolerate the doses of three or 4,000 milligrams of niacin that it took to really get the benefit, uh, but it does work. So it's not useful. It's functional, but not useful. In this case, they made a short interfering RNA that was basically the complement to the messenger RNA that the liver uses to make this lipoprotein A. So remember, you've got the DNA, that's the code, you pull off a, a mold, basically a messenger RNA, you send that to the cytoplasm where it turns into a protein. Well, if you can put an interfering RNA into the cytoplasm, what happens? Well, it gloms on to the messenger RNA and prevents it from fitting into the ribosome, so you never make the protein. This is a very new and very potentially beneficial form of medical therapy, particularly for these things that we can't find a drug for. So this study enrolled adults with LPA plasma concentrations greater than 150, which is where you start to see some real increase in risk, and they gave them subcutaneous doses of this interfering RNA, and they looked at how effective was it? And they they used multiple different doses, and they looked at them up to 150 days out, and the study was amazing. Uh, The higher the dose you gave, the longer it lasts, at least 150 days after administration. So we're looking at giving a interfering RNA dose once or twice a year to bring these levels down and rectify people's risk. And the amounts of the decrease were substantial at the highest doses. Uh, you remember they're starting off at 150. Uh, the highest dose of drug that was given, which was safe and well-tolerated, brought it down to minus 96%. So you went from about 150 to about 7, which is just phenomenal. And smaller doses, smaller changes, but you really just want to get this thing down to 80. So whatever dose does that in the individual, you're done. Come back in six months and we'll give you another shot. I think maybe even patches would work because this stuff is lipid-soluble. It's going to slide in through the skin. And as long as the cytochromes, the CYP450 breakdown cytochromes that are sitting in the skin to break down toxins, as long as they don't get it, well, then it's into the bloodstream we go and off to the liver and end of discussion. Really exciting stuff coming along. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.